Hello, I'm Howard Miller, contributing editor and podcast host for The Daily Journal, and we welcome you to this edition of The Daily Journal podcast on For the Legal Profession and Lawyers, one of the most important issues we all are dealing with. With everyone working from home now, or with so many people working from home, with whole new amounts of legal work uh, being done electronically rather than in person, with some of these changes that people are saying will be permanent and not just temporary. We've dealt with, we are facing a whole different level in the legal profession of cybersecurity risk. And that is what we're going to talk about today, not just the ordinary cybersecurity risk that we've always dealt with, but what new risks now in terms of the amount of work that we're doing online, what new risks there are now in cybersecurity, and what are the best ways of dealing with them. If you'd like uh, MCLE credit, for listening to this podcast for the hour. It's very easy to obtain. Uh, just go to dailyjournal.com, the website dailyjournal.com, which is outside the Daily Journal paywall. It's it's freely accessible. You'll see a link uh, to this podcast and to an MCLE test that you can take electronically and send into the Daily Journal, and you may obtain the one-hour CLE credit for this uh, for this podcast. To discuss our cybersecurity issues, we really could not have a better guest. Our guest today is Daniel Gary. Daniel is the founder of Law and Forensics LLC, a leading firm dealing with cybersecurity at all levels. He has a technical as well as a legal background. He's a lawyer, but he has a bachelor's and master's degree in computer science from Brandeis University. And for well over 20 years, Daniel has been a major force in dealing with all cybersecurity issues. He also is a mediator and arbitrator at JAMS and is regularly consulted in ongoing proceedings as well as things that he deals with directly himself in terms of all cybersecurity issues. Daniel, thank you so much for joining us. We really appreciate it. Yeah, it's my pleasure and honor. It's always humbling to be uh, have the privilege and opportunity to discuss such an important topic for the legal profession today. With everybody working from home and the courts basically going digital, there is no shortage of uh, risks around cyber. You just need to look, and there's been, you know, in the past month alone, multiple very high-profile hacks of law firms involving, um, you know, celebrities and from the L.A. with Lady Gaga's law firm. I think one of the titles got hacked, and other firms are getting hacked all the time. Um, and it's a real risk and your, you know, how insurance works and your ethical obligations and, and so on and so forth. Um, and there's a lot of reputational peril because really clients trust, um, law firms to take the appropriate steps to manage and treat their confidential data accordingly. Yeah. And what's so interesting um, now is that what you've mentioned, and we, that, that's really the context for this because, it's always been a big issue, and you've been dealing with it for all these years. And law firms have always had a risk of how they manage their, their electronic databases and communications. But now, talk about the, the risk, for example, of lawyers working from home now, which virtually every law firm is now facing uh, in, in, in the current time. So you've got large numbers of lawyers uh, with needing access to firm files communicating only electronically, large numbers of documents in all contexts now being transmitted electronically. There always were some, but it's now become almost dominant in terms of the use. 
And so in terms of a potential hacker, this is a target-rich environment. So let's talk about a firm that has lawyers working at home. What what kind of risks are they dealing with and how, how should they approach well, this? I think something like 40% of home networks are already compromised. Um, say that again. Some, say say that again. I'm sorry. I think no, no. Like I asked you to say it again, not because I didn't hear you, but because I uh, think it's so striking. And these... of home network um, are compromised. Or the devices in the house are compromised. Um, I mean, I think the statistics are, you know, a Russian hacker can get in a computer network in under 20 minutes. And there's a lot of like scary things that are happening, but I think, you know, with everybody working from home and, you know, it's complicated. You work from home, you have your kids on your network, you're on your network, everybody's accessing everything. And, you know, you don't have the same level of professionalism, um, just at the basic use of your home network, right? And who controls that? And I mean, what's going on? I mean, I think there's an attack every 30 seconds or every 45 seconds. And I mean, you know, there's a lot of, um, you know, crazy things that are happening. I think they say cybercrime is more profitable than global drug trade now. Um, so I mean, but with people working from home, right? Well, let's, 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 let's let's talk about that and pardon me, but let's, because I think what you've said is so striking. 40% are compromised. So if we have lawyers now working from home, what should a law firm do? Should a law, is a law firm obligated in some way or should the firm go to that home network? Because if someone, and it doesn't require a Russian hacker, these are not difficult things if someone yeah. gets into the home network suddenly they can get into the whole law firm with passwords and other things so what should a firm yeah, do i mean a law firm i mean law firms can take common sense steps like turn on dual factor authentication uh, be more aware about um how they're uh working and securing um monitoring access um i think you know i think most law firms are aware that I mean every law firm is being attacked on a daily basis if they they don't realize it then they're just burying their head in the sand every single law firm is being attacked and probed on a daily basis and every single home network is being probed but I mean turn on due factor authentication um, but I think they should consider investing and in, you know the law firm like I think Google just said they're giving a thousand bucks for home Furniture reimbursement, I think they give money, additional money for helping people secure um, their home networks. I mean, your home Wi-Fi, most people don't even reset their routers. So, I mean, it's not like you have to be a rocket scientist, as you said. Like, there are basic things like update your routers, make sure you're using encryption, um, you know, these are things that big and small law firms can basically get easy access to make sure there's a firewall software installed on the home on your home machines and if they're working on really sensitive deals and other things maybe consider installing a, a physical firewall in the house and having you know depending on if you're working on M&A deals and you're charging your clients 1800 bucks an hour or if anything you know a thousand bucks an hour spend ten thousand dollars to have that lawyer's home secured and monitored properly 
I don't think your clients will complain, and I think your clients probably expect it. I mean, lawyers should also be using VPNs, and you know, but the problem is the VPN isn't so awesome if the home computers are actually being hit. So, I mean, law firms really need to start thinking about and recognizing the additional risk that happens. I'm sure we'll see in the coming months, you know, lots of shocking information coming to light about what's going on. I mean, I think there's countless law. I mean, I think last earlier this year, there are two law firms in Texas. I think it's public now. Um, Baker, Wotrig, and uh, Wilson Eisler. Um, they've been compromised and they had security issues. Well, let's talk for a moment. Let's talk for a moment. You say they're they're compromised. A couple of things I want to touch on in what you said. First of all, in terms of law firms dealing with with, uh, these security issues, I mean, everything that is done by someone working at home in the law firm computer can be monitored. Should firms be monitoring, and I don't mean someone sitting at a computer and watching, but having the electronic and the software yeah. resources to monitor every single bit of access and work that's done by someone working from I home? Mean, I would. I mean, law firms are, I think there's a recent study out in Security Magazine out of the UK that says that something like 15% of law firms that get hacked lose a substantial number of clients. And they have contracts terminated and lose business. And I think from a business perspective and also from an ethical perspective, what's a reasonable level? I don't know having robust remote monitoring is appropriate for every lawyer in every case. But I think that um, there's definitely like a, a need to have that level of accountability. I mean, I mean... But let's let's talk about an example. I think you've mentioned some, but a very well known uh, New York law firm. This was widely reported. Uh, was hacked with ransomware, uh, with a demand for forty million dollars. I think was the latest that I heard. Oh, the Grubman thing, the Grubman situation. Now they're going after their clients individually. <laughs> you mean um, based on what they found by hacking in, they now have access. And can communicate with clients directly and are doing so, demanding payment or else the client's information will be made public? I mean, they're criminals, I would think. I mean, I mean, I don't know for dead certain that's what's happening. That's some of what's been reported, that, but I don't know how accurate it is or how they check their sources. But, I mean, I can tell you that if I were a criminal and I had data and other people aren't willing to pay, um, it can be problematic. I mean, small firms, you know, they can turn on two-factor authentication, full disk encryption, um, you know, train employees to properly not click on links and, you know, you know, reset passwords and, you know, but I mean, one spear phishing email click by a lawyer who's sitting in his house that thinks someone's writing to him about his kid at school and the restart of school, that's a spear phishing email. Um, that's it. I mean, they get access to the username and password for that employee. And then they, if they're sophisticated, can cut their way through um, the environment. And in Grubman's case, um, they have, uh, they can just reach. I mean, they're criminals, right? Why wouldn't you reach out to the entertainers and extort them directly? Well, and I'm sure that that is happening. 
some level. Well, let's talk about some of these things that, that you're talking about. One is monitoring. But, of course, what do you do? There are all sorts of communications once people are in the habit and regularly work. You've got communication by mobile telephones as well. A great many lawyers now work on their mobile phones and, and in fact, rely on the mobile phones for a great deal of the work that, that they do. Does that add additional risk as well? Um, mobile devices are a huge other set of problems. But, I mean, it's a, it's a reasonable effort to have responsible security for lawyers, right? You don't want to go see a surgeon that hasn't gone to medical school and done surgery before to operate on you. And you, what you want at a minimum is someone that's gone to medical school, did the residency, and has you know, done a couple hundred surgeries before you're the first person they operate on. And you want to know that they have the right controls and processes and other things in place to protect your health and your privacy. Um, law firms aren't used to being held to that standard for cybersecurity, but I, I mean, we're there now. I mean, we've been there since 2014, really, but I mean, it's becoming much more public. But I mean, Walmart's been hacked, but people still shop at Walmart. Walmart's had a data breach. Um, lots of companies have data breaches, right? So, but you've made a very, but, but you've made a very important point here, which is that what you do, you know, you don't, people who are attempting to do this and human nature being, if there's opportunities for obtaining some of these things and people have the skills to do it, they will try and use whatever is available. But what you're, one of the important things you're saying is there are levels of security here that simply make it more difficult for someone who wants to come in, uh, to come in and hack. If you have no security, if you don't check your people, if you don't have the two-factor authentication, uh, if you haven't done other basic things, then there are talented teenagers who could be hired to come in and, and break in if you don't do. But if you impose some basic controls, then essentially you may not be able to prevent the, uh, some state actor with all those resources from coming in, but you've raised that level. It's, it's the whole reason to well, pay attention to basic things here is to make it more difficult. Uh, and to, to yeah. do. Well, I think there's a reasonable, I mean, there have to be some level of expectation that a law firm is being, you know, held accountable um, for their behavior and actions, right. To protect the data. We have locks on our doors. We have video cameras. We have turnstiles. We don't let certain documents go out of our office. We have protective orders. We have to, lawyer firms have big and small have to adjust and realize that they may make a little less money because they're going to have to invest in securing their, and same for dispute resolution, frankly, as well. But for everybody, I mean, everybody is needing to be, you know, aware and engaged. Well, let's go over, let's go over the, this, but we're talking to law firms. Let's, because we've become used to the technical terms, but let's focus on, when you talk about two-factor authentication in terms of access, describe what that means. Does that mean the person working at home, as we often see two-factor authentication in dealing with, with commercial vendors, uh, when they try and come in, are sent a, a, a then security code that they have to enter back in to verify who they yeah. are? How, 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 how does two-factor authentication work? Uh, it's, pretty, it's called, well, I mean, it's multi-factor authentication, and it's a way of basically going beyond a username and password, right? Two-factor authentication is really a subset of multi-factor authentication, 
But two-factor authentication basically is using not only a password and username, but some other way to qualify that user. Now, you can get a phone call to your phone. You can get an email to a separate account. You can get a text message to your phone. You can have them call your home phone and you hit one on your phone. I mean, there's a lot of different ways, but it's using an independent mechanism beyond just the password to authenticate that user, okay. right? And it's not 100%, right? I mean, i give you an example. We had multiple situations, you know, law forensics is a global legal engineering firm, and we've dealt with several situations where people had multi-factor turned on, but they were having the email, the option to have an email sent to the compromised email account. So what good did that do? So, I mean... You have to have two-factor or multi-factor authentication, but then you have to, you know, make it and use it appropriately. I mean, and it's not so expensive. I mean, Microsoft, if you're using Office 365, can have it turned on at a certain level. I think it's E3 or E4. You can turn it on. Well, let's let's talk. Yeah, but let's talk. I, I think it's important. People listening. So, really, is it fair to say that since some form of multi-factor identification, two-factor more through a variety of things, is easily done, that really no firm should allow someone working remotely to come in simply with a password, but should have some other way, multi-factor way, to identify the person who's coming in, even if the password is used. I mean, yeah, I mean... Yeah, it just depends on how they set up and how they exercise passwords as well, right? If you require a 12-digit password and have that role every week, I mean, you know, the risks are lower than having it every 90 days and only eight characters, right? But there's no doubt that using two-factor authentication would be a, I don't want want to say de minimis standard because you have to set it up appropriately, but I think it's it's certainly a, a way to demonstrate reasonable security measures, but there are other things that need to be done as well, right? You need to train your employees. You know, they are, people already have day jobs. Lawyers aren't cybersecurity experts. They, you know, you need to turn on more sophisticated mail filtering, um, solutions. And, but when you're working from home, I mean, it's a whole different ball game. I mean, there's, you know, you have to have better Wi-Fi management on your smart home and a security platform to do it. There's a fantastic company called Minim, M-I-N-I-M dot co, that has a fantastic solution for helping, you know, really easily for people to have better Wi-Fi management, security, and control in their house. Um, I think it's critical. I think if you're running a mid to small, you know, law firm, you should spend the money. Well, but there's also, you say, spend the money. I mean, we've mentioned, but I think it's important to emphasize that if there are public disclosures, if there is a hack in public disclosure, or if client information is used to the harm of clients because there was a hack to the firm and a firm could not demonstrate that they were meeting what has become a standard of care in terms of of providing cybersecurity, that we could be talking about a very substantial liability risk here as well. No question. No, I mean, I mediate these cases. Like, I mean, I have mediated a half a dozen law firm-based cases tied to this very issue, right? I mean, there's huge liability, right? There's a very public case with a Chinese, uh, um, Chinese, I don't want to say dissident, what's, uh, applicant for asylum. 
with a law firm that got hacked and I think he's suing them for $50 million in, in DC. And I believe the case survived summary judgment or parts of it certainly did. So, so what we're talking, so what we I mean, that's a real world example. It's a malpractice suit for a document hack. Yeah. That basically, um, it's a lot, I think it, in March, I mean, it might have slipped by with everything that happened, but the DC district court, which is a fairly big deal, um, said that a malpractice suit for document hack that exposed the client information could proceed forward. Um, and it was a fascinating opinion. I think it was, I think it was published at the end of February. I, I, I'm working on memory here, but, um, this law firm, um, it'll come to me in a minute, but, basically said that we'll, he told them that the Chinese government's going to try to hack us. They're going to try to hack your firm. I think he told them this in 2017 at some point. I read the opinion. And he told them, like, when you take me as a client, there's going to be serious, you know, interest by the Chinese government. They're going to try to hack it and try to get my information, my spouse's information for my asylum application. And I mean, if you read the opinion and the whatever, there's the law firm, I mean, I don't know, we'll see what happens when it goes to trial, but there's a corporate duty to protect is what the court holds, and that corporations have a duty to protect against the company, and, the, you know, there's this, I think law firms also have a duty, it hasn't been case law yet, but I, I got to think that that's going to come forward, and I think... Yeah, I mean, this guy, this law firm was cut through like Swiss cheese and the client's information was taken and he's suing him for $50 million. And the court, you know, said, uh, not so worried. Like they didn't throw it out. They said this is a case that can go to trial. Yeah. And we also have, we're talking about communications from home with lawyers working at home. Uh, but there also are issues then in setting up communications with clients as well, aren't there? Because if you have an electronic communication with clients, uh, you've got to deal with these same issues uh, and making sure that the law firm has to, it really has to think through what, what this should be done in terms of client communications, doesn't it? A hundred percent. I mean, your clients are giving you information that's proprietary and confidential and well there's two parts to it right there's a legal obligation under you know california the ccpa to have reasonable security i think a law firm probably have a big law firm may have more than twenty five thousand you know customers over the course of its operations and maybe not but i think that at a practical level lawyers are going to be held accountable for reasonable security and you know, you have a statutory issue, then you have an ABA ethics. You know, we have, we get license. We're a profession that has a license. And because of that, um, there's an obligation. Well, and you've mentioned, we've talked about in the context of the law firm of, uh, and I think it's important just to review for a moment the basic stuff that we've talked about in terms of dealing with this. Because I think most people, we've mentioned it a couple of times, but are not fully aware of the Wi-Fi risk for the home participant. And that is something yeah. that people have to look Huge at. Risk. Huge risk. And then we've talked about Huge. we've talked about multi-factor authentication uh, in terms of, of, of granting access. And we've talked about 
installing in the office software and monitoring systems so you know everything that's being done in terms of access. There are other basic things that we've always had to be aware of but now become more critical in terms of law firms. For example, when people leave law firms, they may have had access to files and passwords and everything. There has to be a great attention to the frequency, you know, to, to denying access to those who leave and something else you've mentioned to the frequency of changing passwords. Uh, yeah, as, just as basically. Yeah. Time. Yeah, 100%. And you're right on, Howard. I mean, and there's other things like full disk encryption comes with Windows 10 professional, you know, you may, you know, you can't have a one guy IT shop or outsource your IT to a one, one guy shop that doesn't have the appropriate cybersecurity minimum tools. Um, you don't have to have the same security level as crevasse per se, but you need to have, you know, unless, you know, if you're litigating a case against crevasse, I mean, you may, you know, if you're playing in that level, you may be required to have the same level of security because the risk to the information in that case may be at that level. I mean, it'll be interesting to see what happens. But I think what is really interesting is, you know, there's basic things lawyers can do. Like you said, multi-factor authentication. They turn the encryption on. They can spend like the 500 bucks and buy uh, a real security platform for their home network, like the Minim solution, the Minim cloud solution, or something similar to that, right? I mean... And it manages all the Wi-Fi because you have to understand you have in your house, you have IPTV, you have your vacuum, your kitchen. You have so many Wi-Fi networks and signals that can be used to compromise and get in, right? And you're sitting there doing super sensitive work for TRO motions or trademarks or whatever it may be that, you know, I think corporate, you know, law firms have to secure that Wi-Fi network or, you know, buy a special hotspot that runs through Verizon and offer them that way um, a clean network connection and use a VPN for, you know, installing a VPN solution, another great practical step. Well, let's talk, simple thing. let's talk about that for Turn a moment. Turn your computer off at night. Turn the computer off at night, yes. But, you know, what's striking about You the- laugh, but I mean, it's simple, but you're talking about, let's say you finish at 8 o'clock, right? Turn it off. Yeah. Then there's nobody's going to try to hack you for nine hours. But you know what's so interesting about this is that people think about cybersecurity, but you need an extraordinary level of help to achieve cybersecurity. But what we're talking about here are basic tools, some available in the office suite, others available through vendors. Very basic tools can be implemented here to increase the level of security, the VPN, the virtual private network. But what's been striking in terms of dealing with this and and the risks is if I heard you correctly, if people have a smart home, if they're using their Wi-Fi for what's called a smart home and their doorbell or refrigerator or whatever is connected to the smart home in the Internet of Things, which is now going to, you know, becoming one of the biggest things in the world, the Internet of Things, that someone who has access to any of those things, who hacks into one of those things, into the doorbell or refrigerator, if you're only using the Wi-Fi without these other protections, that that could give someone access to the Wi-Fi network and to the files of the law firm by the hacker who comes into the thing that's on the Internet of Things. Oh, yeah, for sure. 
and they're working from their house. So who knows what's actually happening? Yeah. yeah. Now we've talked about this in the the law firm and the client, but of course, what's also happened is that a huge amount of dispute resolution uh, has moved uh, online as well. Mediations are now rarely conducted online. Arbitrations are being conducted online. Uh, various platforms are used. Uh, Zoom is is one of them, but Microsoft uh, has its own Blue platform. Jeans. Blue Jeans. Uh, there were a variety of platforms, and in, and and in these proceedings, again, we have the issue of of document transfer. And of course, everyone signs confidentiality agreements in these things, but we still have things moving back and forth. Are there risks that can be protected against in these? dispute resolution proceedings. What what are what are the risks there that we need to be aware of? Well, I definitely want to answer that, but I wanted to speak about mobile devices really quickly. Oh, um, please go ahead. For No, uh, no, I think that's a separate... We all use mobile devices, and I think paying attention that's required to those is very important. Please go ahead. Yeah, and, uh, and I certainly will revert back to the other topic. Um, um, I think... Um, the thing that, uh, when I'm looking at is, um, it, it's complicated. Mobile devices are even, um, um, it's complicated because they connect using their Wi-Fi network and your mobile device can be, um, complicated and you need to secure it and have some sort of threat monitoring, monitoring tools. And other things and mobile device management tools, um, for managing that risk and responding accordingly. What is and the risk? What, what is the risk? I mean, you've made a very important point. You have a mobile device, but if you're using it at home or any other Wi Fi network, you're going over Wi Fi with all the risks of Wi Fi. Suppose you're using the mobile phone, not on a Wi Fi network, but through the telephone, through, through the satellite capacity. Uh, directly without using Wi-Fi. You turn off Wi-Fi on the cell phone mobile device and you use it uh, through through the satellite and the cell tower connections. Is there also a security risk there? Yeah, sure. I mean, well, it's lower. I mean, like, this, to hack a cellular network, it requires quite a bit, you know, more sophistication um, than what we would normally see. Um, I mean, I wouldn't be terribly worried about that. Well, that's a very, um, but I want to pause there. Pardon me for interrupting because that's so critical. In other words, even in the use, people have a variety of plans and people try and use the Wi-Fi network as often as possible if they will have extra charges for use of extra gigabits in the, in the cell phone. But this is a tremendously important point, which is using the mobile device through the cell towers or satellites without Wi-Fi turns out to be a more secure, is what you're saying, a much more secure way of communicating than using the mobile device on Wi-Fi. Yeah, I wouldn't say it's the most secure, but it's certainly a better place to be than using just Wi-Fi alone. Um, it's complicated, but I think that, yeah, I mean, the best thing to do and put a VPN client on the mobile devices, yeah, well, talk, mean, tell us about the VPN. We've used that for and said that it's a virtual private network. But what is that, and how does it work? 
Um, so what it does is it adds a layer and creates an ace. Um, so it's in, like you said, it's a virtual private network. So what happens is it basically allows people now they're not, let's be clear. VPNs are not bulletproof. Okay. A VPN is not an end all be all for everything. Right. So it's basically that you're using a public network to connect to remote sites and other users. And I mean, because it's virtual, it gets routed through the internet to the business network. And what happens is, is that it allows, it encrypts all of the data when it leaves your phone or your mobile device to connect to your work network. Um, they, it creates like a tunnel. The best way to look at it is like it's a tunnel from A to B and it's completely encrypted and people can't intercept the encrypted data. If they intercept the data, they can't read it. It's encrypted. Um, like you have, there used to be, you know, people would connect, you know, using lease lines and dedicated line networks or private network connections to lease lines straight to the house. Um, but you know, with everybody working from home, I wouldn't hold your breath there. And I mean, VPN should be used by all businesses, but you should use them also for when you're at a hotel and you're using any public Wi-Fi network. And frankly, anytime you're working from home, you should be doing it. It makes a tunnel, right, from A to B, and it makes anybody that looks at that data when it's in transit unintelligible. I will tell you, though, that if the computer itself is hacked and they have a keystroke logger on the device, they don't need to hack into your communication channel. They'll just get your passwords and read it. No, no, and I want to focus so, for a moment. I want to focus for a moment on a single word that you use so we know what we're talking about. You said it's not, it's not foolproof. It's not bulletproof. Nothing that we're talking about can, will, I think, be said to be bulletproof. I mean, if a state actor with the great intelligence abilities decided they wanted to hack into your law firm, uh, if the United States government cannot prevent that, if intelligence agencies cannot prevent that, it's not bulletproof. But what we're talking about here is not creating something that is bulletproof, but meeting the standard of care and raising the level of skill and resources necessary to hack in so that if there is a hack, because someone with those extraordinary resources comes along, the law firm will have done everything that reasonably could be done in terms of maintaining relations and defending against potential liability. That's what we're talking about here. Nothing I think it's important that you use that phrase because nothing will be bulletproof, but the level required to hack in can be raised to such an extent that only a very limited number of people could ever successfully do the hack. Now, that's generally true as long as you're updating your VPN law firm. So there's, I think there was a hack of a law firm by the crypto gang called the Rebel Gang. And here's the trick. You need to also patch your software. Um, uh, there's like a Pulse Secure VPN that pushed out a patch several months ago. I mean, they punch out patches all the time. Um, but I mean, so you can hack a VPN and if you don't patch, if you don't patch it, right, you have to also patch your VPN software. It's not automatic. So a lot of law firms, the other thing you should make sure when people are working from home is that uh, the networking equipment's being packed properly. 
that your VPNs and your antivirus and your firewall on your work machines are being patched regularly. You don't let them connect if they're not properly patched. And I mean, these are basic things that you can do as an employer to sort of sort that out. I think we'll see over the next, you know, year or so, a lot of law firms got hacked. I mean, I feel bad for the government firm because frankly, most major law firms have all been compromised. And uh, for whatever reason, people become very fixated on this hack, but it's no different than the ones that hit Cravath or um, Reed Smith several years ago or a bunch of them, right? I mean, and, you know, it's about using these basic strategies we're talking about that will stop pretty much most, or if not all of these hacks, like patching your VPN properly. Is there software, can I ask you, you talk about constantly checking these things. Is there software that can be used that essentially will do all of these checks on a daily basis to make sure that all these things are being properly done? Yeah, I mean, yes, but it has to be configured properly. And that's where it gets tricky, right? It's sometimes easier just to have a managed service and set it up so people can't connect if things aren't properly patched. But you have to have the right people knowing how to do it, right? A lot of mid, small to mid-sized law firms that I've worked with have like one guy who they outsource 95% of their IT operations to. And they pay him like 50 bucks or 100 bucks an hour to do their work. And with all due respect to those people, like they're not trained in setting up these sophisticated systems. And there are um, managed services that I think are offered to law firms um to help with this process but i mean you can do it yourself i mean if you're running a five-person law firm you can make sure that people are properly patching and you have the right controls and processes in place that these things are being enforced but in terms of cost i mean what you what you're saying i think important concept in terms of cost there have always been a standard set of costs for a law firm rent for example you know you have to pay rent and employee costs yeah. The cost of cybersecurity has now become one of the required factors in terms of running a law firm. It's not an option anymore. It's not a luxury. It's simply in terms of the necessity, like getting physical space, paying rent, hiring your employees. You've got to pay attention to cybersecurity <laughs> and, and what it costs in order to protect the firm and clients. That's that's a perspective. Well, we agree on that. Yeah. Well, Me and I, you agree on it. Well, but I think what well, just look at the law firms that are being hacked. I mean, these these, ha- these people aren't brilliant hackers, right? They're taking advantage of known vulnerabilities, right? These hacks that are happening to these law firms aren't being done. Don't get me wrong, the criminal organizations are sophisticated and and can do a lot of damage, but they're not like hacking into the NSA using advanced whatever tools, right? They're taking advantage of people that don't properly patch their VPN software or their office, you know, clients. I mean, you know, people lose sight that not Petya was effective, but it could have been ha- stopped if you patched. What 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 is that a reference to? The Petya reference? Uh, not Petya was, I think, to date the largest ransomware hack in the world. I think causing upwards of ten billion dollars. Um, and good patch management would have stopped the spread of not patch your ransomware. Wow. 
Uh-huh. And it caused, and it hit everybody. I mean, that's what took DLA Piper offline. Um, they're the most visible law firm, public law firm. I think they're engaged in litigation about, um, they're not Petya claim at this point, but with their insurer. But I mean, DLA got hit by not Petya. Now, don't get, and I think there was like 15,000 hours or some, I don't know, some astronomical number of times for IT overtime from not Petya alone. I'm sorry I mean, to interrupt. I'm sorry to interrupt you, but we've used the phrase "oven." Petya is is what? What what are you describing? Not Petya. Not Petya is a ransomware. Okay, so that's if you, is, it's it, the name of a ransomware attack. Okay. No, I wanted to clear that so it was clear what you're talking about yeah. that that reference was clear. But it's um, no. I think what we've mentioned here. You say you and I agree, but I think as these things, one of the things that's happened, of course, is there's been a great interest in not having a lot of these things publicly reported. And the number of things that have happened that have not been reported and made public probably exceed by an order of magnitude the ones that are known publicly. So in a sense... I mean, I know hundreds. (laughs) Yeah, and I think that's why this discussion is so important because when you realize the magnitude, the number of attacks that regularly occur, and suddenly we've referred to it as people working from home is this whole new target-rich environment uh, in terms of getting into law firm files that uh, I think it will become standard to understand that the cost of cybersecurity is one of the necessary and required costs of, uh, of, of running a law firm. So let's, I agree. So let's switch to the, uh, uh, to the uh, dispute resolution area because... Uh, you know, it's clear that a great deal, in order for the, for the legal system to function, uh, a great deal will move online. Uh, the mediation has been apparently, it's worked well in many circumstances. Some form of online work will continue. Are there special risks? Let's start with the mediation issue. Are there special risks uh, in, the, in the software that's being used for online mediation? Sure. Well, yeah, a lot of people don't know how to use it. Um, <laughs> so knowing how to use it, set it up, install it, configure it, make sure your cameras are working properly and you're using passwords to protect the conversation is, you know, what sounds blazingly obvious to everybody when I say it out loud, but it's a quite a bit more complicated to install and operate. Um, and I think that, you know, again, Neutrals and the lawyers are all operating from their home networks. And if I were them, I would invest in a solution like the Manamco solution or something similar to secure their home Wi-Fi network and manage them because, you know, so there's two parts to a mediation, right? One is making sure that people know how to use the Zoom, right? There's a Zoom and, and the level of security with the Zoom solution you've got, there's HIPAA compliant Zoom, um, which has a much, I don't say a much higher level of security, but I would say noticeable difference in the level of security that it provides. Um, and I mean, so, I mean, you have to know how to install it and buy the right, you have to spend the right money. Blue Jeans is also a great solution if you know how to secure it. WebEx, I've been using that for years. 
um, in different environments. But again, you have to know how to use it, install it, configure it. And then there's a whole separate security issue. That's the first security issue, right? Knowing how to install, utilize, and make sure that you have the right, you know, how to use virtual rooms properly, how to put people in so they can't see chat, how to engage in the appropriate and proper dialogue. Those are all I call user security issues, I guess, and, and administration security issues. Um, making sure that you have the most current version of Zoom installed on your machine. But let's go, let's go beyond that. I think you're absolutely right. People need the training, need to know how to use all existing tools. Oh, that's step but one. That's, that's step, step one. Then there's step two. So then you have a whole separate issue of the fact that everybody's working from home and, you know, you're, you're only as good as the weakest link, as we say, right? So you have mediators who are mediating cases from their house. So how secure is their home network? Like, how do you know their network's not compromised and they're just not watching the mediation happen in real time? How do you know that the documents that are being sent provided to the mediator haven't been properly secured so that bad actors can intercept it, right, and steal it. I mean, you don't. Then you have the parties, right? Then you have the law firms and the lawyers, and then you have the clients. So you have a lot, a diverse set of actors where every one of those actors is a vector that could be compromised to hack a mediation. So, I mean, when I do a mediation, right, I mean, I tell people up front that your know, security is only as good as the security of your home network, your computers, and the, you know, the service we're using. And beyond that, I mean, that's all you're left with. But I mean, there's huge risks involved. I mean, there are mediators and arbitrators that haven't patched or upgraded or have a firewall or a physical firewall in their house forever, right? I mean, and then you have lawyers who basically don't have any antivirus sitting on their computer. And then you have clients that are like, what are the antivirus? So those are all different areas that would, that need to be secured for mediation to happen without people worrying about someone intercepting list documents or other things. But I mean, it's good. If you want my opinion, it's good enough. It gets the job done. And 99% of the media, it, and, and also don't forget, it's a crime to hack something. You, those people would be criminally charged. You are, you are violating criminal law. And, you know, how does a hacker make money off hacking a mediation? Right. So these are all the practical considerations. I mean, I could see an arbitration maybe a little better, but how is someone going to actually make money off hacking a mediation in real time? Well, but the information, I mean, when we're talking about the motivation, uh, if there were litigation involving a competitor, uh, not, oh, sure. it, and, and there was a non-party that was interested in how that, uh, how that was being handled, uh, in terms of, of a competitor or competitors, the information that's available in the online session would be valuable to the oh, competitor. No it's not a question of ransomware. It's a question of sometimes information has value for other reasons than demanding payment uh, from the person you're hacking. Well, I agree, 100%. I mean, and it's about managing that risk. I mean, the NSA yesterday released a warning that Russia hacking campaigns against U.S. systems is going like going out of style, right? I mean... They're using really sophisticated, targeting private companies. 
So that could be private operators of arbitration and mediation. You want to leverage somebody? You want to, you know, take advantage of things? But what I want to emphasize, what I want to emphasize, if I can, is I think it's clear that that there may be stakes in certain litigation uh, that would involve serious state actors. But but I think the important one of the important things to focus on is that there are so many people with the skill level to come in. Oh yeah, you don't have to be a state actor to do this. This yeah. is not even like you have to be able to read English and follow some directions no, for most of these acts to use them. But it is a crime. But also, something is happening in the world in this area, and it's happening in other areas as well. But especially in computer knowledgeability. We've never had a situation, or at least I can't think of one, where individuals who can train themselves could cause so much damage. I mean, several years ago in one of the... Oh, yeah. One of the MIT... Amazing. It's like you can... Yeah, I was going to say one of the MIT MOOCs, the the online courses, gave a test uh, at the end to 30,000 or whatever. I don't know the exact numbers, but these were the orders of magnitude. About 100 people got a perfect score on the test. And one of them was a 14-year-old kid in, 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 in the rural areas of Mongolia. Instantly, they saw this. He brought him. He became a student. He's now, you know, a computer wizard. But the point is that people, teenagers, can educate themselves online and develop a set of individual skills that makes them able to do this. And we've never had a situation. You talk about other destructive technologies. The atomic bomb requires huge state resources, even biology requires some investment, but we've never, but this kind of situation is, and any individual can train themselves to have the skill to do damage here in cybersecurity. I mean, that's how I, I mean, you, yeah, 14 year old kid, I know firsthand can can cause a lot of damage. Um, But I think that, you know, if you go back, I mean, for arbitration, I mean, I believe in 2015, an arbitration portal was hacked by Chinese hackers. Um, um, and I mean, the arbitra- you're right. Arbitrations are, are certainly targeted. I think that one's public. I know there's been others. But there are arbitrations. There's some international arbitrations, for example, that involve billions of dollars in which there are great interests by a great many people who have the capacity to come in. So to do an international arbitration that involves the kind of stakes that international arbitrations, especially involving governments, those kind of stakes, that's the kind of thing that requires, wouldn't you think, the major investment to whatever level of security you can reach. But yeah, to- yeah, I agree. I mean, we were I'm an arbitrator, right? And I will on big high stakes arbitrations, it's shocking to me. I mean I mean it, it's just shocking to me. I mean you know, when you look and yeah, I mean, look at the kid that I, the mock, the MOOC class, right? I mean, out of Mongolia, right? Yeah. That kid can like basically, you know, to earn a perfect score on that class, I've got to think, got to be good. <laughs> well, but there, you know, there are an enormous yeah. number, an enormous number of talented people and always have been in the world. Ramunajan, the mathematician, is the classic example, who lived around yeah. the world, who had the talent, but who had no access 
uh, either to the people that could advance them or, uh, you know, you had to write letters, you had to travel by plane or boat. But now all you need... No more. No more. You need a simple computer. You can buy a Chromebook for a couple hundred bucks. You can go online. You can learn everything you need to learn. And in a couple of years, you can become one of the more dangerous people in the world. And that's... Yeah, maybe pretty much. Well, let me ask you... is a great organization. Yeah. Uh, let me ask you one other question about the mediation, because it's often asked by people involved. Uh, the technology, whatever is used, often has, you know, saying that the host or the moderator clicks no recording. The host is not recording and bars recording. <laughs> can, 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 is it, is it technically, is, are all participants barred from recording, uh, if the host stops recording and indicates that, that the, that no one can record? That's not, no, sorry for laughing. No, I mean, you can record anything on a computer. You just put on a different piece of recording software. Yeah. Um, yeah, that's just silly. I mean, the most basic way to do it is just set up an iPhone on the monitor. But, there, you know, you can easily turn on um, capture software on, download it to any computer, and it'll capture everything. Well, but there's an important, again, when you talk about security, I mean, it may be that you can't record within the program, but as you said, you're watching a computer monitor. So you simply record with an external device, like a cell phone camera with, for images, or another software outside the uh, uh, the teleconference software you're using that simply captures whatever appears in your computer while you're using it. Uh that saying that brings us, I think, to uh, to the fundamental point about what we've been talking about, which is that this threat, these threats are enormous. They are real. They are happening, as you've said, every minute. They're happening to all firms. They're happening with clients. They're happening at homes. There are huge weaknesses in Wi-Fi systems everywhere. And Knowledge of the threat is only step one, but step two is there are very basic tools that are available within the programs that are used for uh, multi-factor authentication, for encryption. Basic patching of your software will increase your security posture dramatically. Yeah. This has been such an important discussion, and it's such an important discussion for what we've learned uh, and for what we've alerted people to. I want you to know, those who are listening, that though this podcast is outside the Daily Journal uh, a paywall, there are great resources in the Daily Journal with articles. Daniel has written articles, other vast resources, a treasure trove of resources on cybersecurity and other issues. If you're a subscriber to the Daily Journal, you can very simply search for anything you'd like within the archives. You can bookmark and create files of material that will be helpful to you. And I use the word treasure trove because it is a very important material. If you're not a subscriber, just, just go to dailyjournal.com on which this podcast appears or dailyjournal.com slash podcast. And you will see there is a button, uh, which by clicking a subscribe button, that would permit you to become a subscriber to the Daily Journal and by becoming a subscriber have access not only to this podcast, but to all the materials. I want to thank Daniel Gary so much for taking the time uh, to do this and, and to help us understand the level of risk and some of the things that can be done. Thank you. 